but uh, is it the, someone, oh, there, there they are, yeah, uh, they've heard of Bible Talk. So uh, if you like podcasts, um, I would, I would uh, invite you to check out this Bible Talk podcast that I'm part of with my friends Alex Duke and Sam Imadi, and we're just having ex- expositional conversations about the Bible and just walking straight through. We've done the whole of the Pentateuch, and we're almost done with Joshua, and as soon as we finish Joshua, they'll start releasing new episodes. Uh, in this session, what I'd like to do is look with you at Psalms 1 and 2, and I want to uh, suggest that these two psalms, the first two psalms, comprise, I think that there's a scholar named Robert Cole who wrote a book entitled Psalms 1 and 2, Gateway to the Psalter. And what he's arguing is that these two psalms really do introduce the whole Psalter. And and that's what I want to try to um, put before us and um, discuss. Uh, as As we look at these two psalms, I think we will um, see how the concerns that are introduced in Psalms 1 and 2 really do, they really do control the message of the rest of the book of Psalms. And then I also want to look at Psalm 16 and the way that Psalm 16 is quoted in the New Testament. So um, uh, as we approach uh, Psalm 1, uh, I would invite you to look at, look at it with me. And um, the psalmist um, opens with this phrase, blessed is the man. And the term that's translated blessed here is not the term that is used in the doxologies where we saw uh, blessed be Yahweh. That's this Hebrew verb uh, barak uh, or baruch, you know, it's actually where Barack Obama's name, uh, the Arabic uh, barak is very close to the Hebrew barak. Um, This is actually a term that, it, that it's, it's this, this uh, Hebrew term, ashrei, and it's kind of like the, the blessing, the blessed, the word blessed in the Beatitudes. Uh, it's, it's used to describe the, the flourishing or the happiness or the, the, the whole life fulsome blessedness in that blessed by God, but then enjoying God's goodness. That's, that's this word, not blessed as in praise the Lord, blessed as in look at the good life kind of blessing. So it says, blessed is the man, and then it names what he doesn't do, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and I would just throw in a comment here, all across the Psalter, you'll read references to counsel, like in Psalm 16, I think it it says, uh, in the night my soul counsels me, and I would suggest that when you hit that word counsel, these are callbacks to Psalm 1. Uh, this guy doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but he meditates day and night in the law of the Lord. So the counsel that the, the good guys in the, psalm, in the Psalms receive is the counsel of the scriptures. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah of Yahweh, in the law of the Lord, and on his Torah, on his law, he meditates day and night. So the opening words of Psalm 1, blessed is the man, are matched by the closing words of Psalm 2. You look down at Psalm 2, verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And, and I think, and again, that's the same 
uh, term, ashrei, not baruch or barak. And, and these two instances of this word form an inclusio around Psalms 1 and 2. And then there are going to be a lot of points of contact between Psalms 1 and 2. As we continue in Psalm 1, this blessed man who delights in the, in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, we read in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Okay, so uh, the man is being likened to a tree. We've got a simile there. And he's like a tree that's planted by streams of water. So in the case of a tree, the roots are going to benefit from the water and they're going to be nourished and they're going to receive what trees need from the moisture of the stream saturating the land where where the tree's roots are. But in the simile, the man is receiving that, that nourishment from the meditation on the scriptures. So I would suggest that in, in the metaphor, if the tree is the man, the stream is the Bible. So that what makes it so that the tree is strong and flourishing and healthy is the man meditating on the scriptures. And... This is not necessarily a promise, you know. This, this is not like meditate on the scriptures and your life will be blessed. Nor is it a command. It's not saying you must meditate on the scriptures. But it is a celebration of the blessed man. Blessed is the man. Look at how he lives. Look at the results. And in, in that, I think the psalmist is commending this behavior to his audience. He wants us... To, to look at the blessed man and say, that's how I want to live. And um, there's a guy in our church who I've, I've heard his testimony a number of times now. And um, this, is, this is sort of the testimony that he tells. He says, um, he says, when I got married, I married a woman who in her family culture, the men do the dishes. And he says, my family culture, I had never seen a man do a dish. And he says, so, so my wife, I come into this marriage and my wife expects me to do the dishes. And, and I come into the mar- marriage thinking, no, that's your job to do the dishes. And, and then this brother relates how he was at um, Emmanuel Church, pastored by Ray Ortland in Nashville. And Ray Ortland had invited John Piper to come and preach. And John Piper challenged the whole congregation. He preached on, Psalm, on uh, Romans 8 and he challenged the whole congregation to memorize Romans 8. And this brother did it. And he said, he said as I mem- memorized and meditated on Romans 8, he said, my attitude started to change. My desires started to change. The way I use my time started to change. He said, my attitude toward the dishes started to change. And I went from, I'm not doing that, that's your job, to I'm glad to do that. I, I'm, I can stand here at the, ta- at, the, at the sink and do the dishes and... And, and go over my scripture memory. And, and he said, you know, I finished Romans 8. And he said, I just kept going. And I decided I'll, I'll memorize the rest of Romans. And he's, now he's memorized like Romans and Philippians and First and Second Peter and the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, there's a whole list of books of the New Testament that this brother's memorized. The last I heard he was working on Proverbs and he was through like Proverbs 8. And this brother's life looks like Psalm 1. Because of 
scripture memory, he's very diligent with his time. Because of scripture memory, he's, he's someone that if you, if you say to him, um, I need you to be at this place at this time, he's going to be there. He's going to be there, and he's not going to forget because his brain is like a steel trap because he's trained it by memorizing and meditating on scripture. And he, he notices things. His whole life is flourishing. He's like, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I don't, I don't know if you know anybody like this, but um, really, ultimately, my friend is not the exemplar of this. The exemplar of what it looks like to live like this is the Lord Jesus. And I think that the individual in view in this psalm is the anticipated future king. And the reason I think that is because of the instruction in Deuteronomy 17, where the king of Israel is commanded to, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, write out a copy of the law of Moses in his own hand, approved by the Levitical priests, and then read in it all the days of his life. So I think that that the figure in view here, the figure that that is uh, in the uh, in the intended, you know, communicative intent of the the psalmist, it's the anticipated king who's going to live out Deuteronomy 17. And then, as we continue, we get this contrast between this Edenic figure. Now, I say Edenic figure because that language in verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, Back in Genesis 2, 8 through 10, we read of how the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. And then we read of these four rivers. And and I think that that, um, Psalm 1 is alluding to a planted tree by streams of water to suggest that when we... When we encounter the scripture, when we meditate on the scriptures, it actually mediates the presence of God to us. We we experience God's revelation of himself when we experience the scriptures. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. And as we internalize the scripture, God's words bring us into God's presence. So I would suggest that the closest you can get to the Garden of Eden, walking with God in the cool of the day, on this side of the fall of man, the sin sin of man and the expulsion from Eden, the closest you can get to being in Eden is being at a place where you are abiding in Christ because the words of Scripture are abiding in you. A a place where, uh, you know, there are these, uh, in, in the New Testament, uh, the letter to the Ephesians is really closely parallel to the letter to the Colossians. And in the letter to the Colossians, Paul tells them, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he goes into like the instructions for um, husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands and so forth. In, in the letter to the Ephesians, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes into the instructions for Uh, Husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands. So he's put in the the be filled with the spirit slot 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And, and it's almost like the one is the other. That, that the presence of God is communicated to us as we, as we meditate on scripture. So in contrast with this, this Edenic imagery of this rooted tree that's bearing fruit, we read there in verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So there's no, there's no fruit, there's just chaff. There's no rootedness. There's being blown about by the wind. And um, uh, this image of the wind driving them away is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of God's judgment. Uh, God coming in judgment to uh, uh, visit destruction. So there's a strong contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And then look at uh, verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners... In the congregation of the righteous. Okay, now let's think about what we've got in terms of characters so far in Psalm 1. You've got the blessed man, and then you've got the wicked in general, a group of people. And now we've got a congregation of the righteous. And if we ask ourselves, who are the congregation of the righteous? I think the answer is, they are the people that identify with the blessed man. And as they identify with the blessed man, they're going to they're imitate the blessed man. So the congregation of the righteous, they also are going to delight themselves in the scriptures and they're going to delight themselves in the law of the Lord. Now, I want to, I want to try to get really practical with you here. Um, you know that in our culture, we experience all kinds of things that stimulate dopamine hits, whether we're talking about video games or inappropriate things you could look at on a computer or a phone, uh, whatever. Thing, you can find these things to look at, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause the, sick, the pleasure centers in your brain to go crazy. And, and you probably also are aware of the way that our brains, as we encounter these things, it's almost like these, these pathways are cut deeper and deeper. This grooving takes place in our thinking where we need more and more of it, and we keep returning to it. This kind of thing happens to us. I would suggest to you that Psalm 1 is saying his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that I would, say, I would argue that if you become a person who meditates, memorizes and meditates on scripture, you'll find different pathways being grooved in your brain. You'll find different pleasure centers being activated in your experience. And you'll find those bad impulses being overcome with righteous impulses. These bad desires being replaced by good desires. But it won't happen if you don't memorize and meditate on Scripture. It won't happen if the presence of God is not mediated to you by the Word of God. So you, you kind of got two ways here in Psalm 1. You got the way of the blessed man, which is the way of the congregation of the righteous. And then you've got the way of the wicked. They're, they're not like the blessed man. The blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And he prospers, not so the wicked. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, so we got the good guy, the blessed man, and then the good guys, the congregation of the righteous. And then we've got the wicked over against them. Now, as we go through Psalm 2, we're going to see all these points of contact between Psalm 2 and Psalm 1. Some of them 
are not so apparent in English, but um, um, you'll, you'll just, uh, they're, they're here. And, and, um, if, we, if we were dealing with a more literal translation, we would see it. So verse, chapter 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The word translated plot there is the same tra- word that is translated delight in verse 2. I'm sorry, not, not delight, meditate. He meditates day and night. So you could say, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate in vain? So what are the peoples meditating? He's going to tell us, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. So the, the nations are meditating on their plan to live apart from God and apart from God's king. They think that they can live in God's world apart from God's teaching and apart from God's reign exercised through God's anointed king. That's what the wicked, that's the vanity that the nations and the peoples are meditating on. Two ways. You can meditate on scripture. What's scripture about? Scripture's about how God is going to reclaim dominion over this world through the king from David's line. That's what the blessed man meditates on. That's what the congregation of the righteous delight themselves in. What are the nations plotting? They're plotting an attempt to enjoy God's world apart from God's reign. Uh, an attempt to try to enjoy, God, uh, enjoy life in God's world in, in rebellion against God's instruction. Um, the anointed, his anointed there, I would suggest that's the blessed man. The blessed man from Psalm 1 is the anointed of Psalm 2, verse 2. And, and, the, and the wicked are saying in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what is the counsel of the wicked in which the blessed man doesn't walk? We can live apart from God. We don't have to obey God. Or we could say, bow down before me and I will make the kingdoms of the world yours or throw yourself off the temple or command these stones to become bread you know wh- whatever form it takes this is the the counsel in which the blessed man will not walk um, he also doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers psalm 1 1 and in psalm 2 verse 4 he who sits now this is talking about god in the heavens laughs The Lord holds them in derision. We should adopt some of this response. As as we see people throwing off the knowledge of the creator, there should should be compassion that we we feel in response to them, but there should also be a little bit of, that's ridiculous folly. And we should be prepared to laugh at, at the 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 futility of what people are are trying uh, to, to, what they're endeavoring to accomplish. The Lord, he who sits in the heavens, they're scoffing at him and he's laughing at them. It says in verse 4, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, just put a finger here and look at the next psalm. 
Look at Psalm 3, verse 4, where David says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. The two references in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 3 to the Lord's holy hill, and and David saying, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy well. It, It creates the impression that David's prayer in Psalm 3 is based on his promise in Psalm 2. And I think that's an intended impression. That's, that's what we're intended to conclude. David is praying in Psalm 3 in response to God's promises that we're about to see here in Psalm 2. And this is part of the interconnectedness of the, the Psalter. So now in verse 7, um, David is, is, is going to say, and I say David because in Acts 4.25... Uh, they, the, the apostles and, and Luke, the author of Acts, attribute Psalm 2 to David. So there's no superscription on it, but the New Testament says David wrote it, and I think, therefore, David wrote it. So David now says in, in Psalm 2.7, I will tell of the decree. Now, before I read on, let me just note some things. What David is about to say closely parallels the promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And before I read these next words, I just want to remind you of what the Lord said through Nathan the prophet to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just a high-level comment here. Um, The book of Samuel may have been written later, but David experienced the event narrated in 2 Samuel 7. And so I think the comments that I'm about to make stand even if the book of Samuel was not written until after, let's say, Psalm 2 had been written. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, the Lord says this to David, I will raise up your seed after you and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and he will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. Okay, so let's just get this clear in our heads. The Lord says to David, I'm going to raise up your your descendant, your offspring, your seed. He, the seed, will be a son to me. I will be a father to him, the seed. Everybody good? Now look at what David, I'm I'm suggesting David here in, in Psalm 2 is saying, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, The promise is, he will be a son to me, I will be a father to him. David is now saying, he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see see the discrepancy here? Now, here's how I would resolve the discrepancy. I think that David, in writing these words, is putting himself in the place of the one who has been pro- the, the one that God promised to raise up from his line. And I, I think what David is doing is he's saying, I'm talking, but really the person speaking is the future king. Do you, you see how I'm, I'm working this out? Because the promise is, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. And now David is saying, he said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Now, a couple more comments here. Well, let me ask you a question. Bible quiz time. In the Old Testament, who is the Son of God? Israel, good. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, go and say to Pharaoh, let my son go. Israel is my firstborn son. Very good. 
prior to Israel, who's the son of God? Adam, bingo, ding, 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 ding. Um, in, in Genesis 5, um, Adam, uh, God made Adam in his image and likeness. And Adam had a son in his likeness and named him Seth. So if Seth, in the likeness of Adam, is Adam's son, then Adam, in the likeness of God, is God's son. It's not stated like that, but it's implied. And in Luke 3.38, when, they, when, he, when Luke works through the genealogy of Jesus, he says, Enosh, the son of Adam, uh, I'm sorry, Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So in Luke 3.38, they call Adam the son of God. So Adam is the son of God, and then the nation of Israel is the son of God. And now, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, the king is the son of God, which means, I think, the king is a new Adam, and he's the representative of the nation of Israel. He represents the nation, and he's, he's the new Adam. And then the, the promise to him in verse 8 is, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, we're going to take over the world. That's, that's the program here. Adam was given dominion over all the earth, and um, now God is saying to the future king from David's line, the dominion that Adam forfeited to the snake, I'm going to reestablish it through your reign. Verse 9, you shall break them in with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's that word that's in Psalm 137, 9. Verse 10, warning for the wicked. Fair warning. It, it is actually kind and merciful and generous for the Bible to say, if you don't repent, you will be smashed. It, it, it's, 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 it's good of God to say, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And we do the wicked no favors if we refuse to warn them. Because God is gonna, God's going to keep his word. God's going to be faithful to his His promises, his warnings. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Look at Psalm 1-6 again. The way of the wicked will perish. Well, serve God. Submission to the son, the anointed, lest you perish in the way. Same terminology. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So these two psalms, surrounded by the the blessed inclusio, they introduce uh, the righteous, those who kiss the son, and the wicked, those who rebel against God and his anointed king. And in Psalm 2 in particular, David is, I think, presenting himself as a prefiguring, uh, foreshadowing type of the future king that God is going to raise up from his line. Now, if we had time, we could walk through Psalms 3 through 15 and see all this interconnectedness, all all this common terminology between these psalms. Um, We don't have time to do that, so I'll just ask you to take my word for it. And look with me at Psalm 16. And and I, I want to work quickly through the first part of this psalm to the end, and then look at the way that it's quoted in the in the New Testament. Uh, So, a miktam of David, Psalm 16, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Okay, now, if you look over at the superscription of Psalm 18, 
it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. I would suggest that in Psalm 16, David is praying in response to threats on his life like those posed by Saul. And if you remember the story, back in 1 Samuel 16, David gets anointed as king by Samuel. And then in chapter 17, David kills Goliath. Saul, the king, is right there. And then, like starting from chapter 18, Saul starts trying to kill David. Saul starts throwing spears at David to kill him. Now, I think David in Psalm 16 is praying along these lines. The prophet Samuel anointed me as king, and God, through the prophet Samuel, promised that I would be king. Therefore, God is going to keep me alive and establish me as king. I think that's the way that David is praying in Psalm 16. So, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, we've, heard, we've just heard, blessed are all who take refuge in him, right? At the end of Psalm 2. So, it's like David is doing in Psalm 16... What he spoke of in Psalm 2, and then he says in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. This is like a a poetic restatement of the, the first, the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, uh, you are my Lord and I love your people. And then verse 4 The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. This is a resolute determination not to engage in idolatry. And we need this kind of resolve. We need to say, I said to the Lord, I will not delight in what they delight in. I will not seek refuge in what they seek refuge in. I will not seek relief where they seek relief. I will not seek pleasure where they seek pleasure. We need that kind of resolve. And we need to lock arms with one another, and we need to be honest with one another, and we need to eradicate the plague of pornography and sexual immorality from our ranks. We we need to be overcomers on this front. And then he says in verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Those two verses use all of this terminology from the book of Joshua when they allotted the tribal inheritance of of land. And it's like David is saying, I want the Levitical inheritance. It's like David is saying, you, Lord, are my inheritance. That plot of ground is really not what matters to me. What matters to me is being in your presence. So he says, the Lord, Yahweh, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. It's almost like David is saying, there's this great scene in in Exodus 33 when the Lord says to Moses, you take those people on up into the promised land. I'm not going with you. If I went with you, I would destroy you on the way. And, And Moses he, he, it's like he recognizes it's better to be in the wilderness with the Lord than in the promised land without him. And he says, if you don't go with us, do not send us up from here. And, and the Lord says, all right, I'll go with you. And, 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 you know, and it's like David has learned this lesson. And he says to the Lord, you are what I need. You are what I want. 
And then verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. There it is. In the night also my heart instructs me. Why? I submit because he's meditating on the scriptures, on the law of the Lord day and night. And so his heart is counseling him because he's internalized the teaching of the Bible. Verse 8, eight I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. No matter what Saul does to me. Saul's got 3,000 soldiers that he's using to chase David around the wilderness. And and David is saying, the Lord is at my right hand. I won't be shaken. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure For you will not abandon my soul to shield. I think he's saying, Lord, I'm confident that because Samuel anointed me and you promised that I would be king, I'm not going to die before you establish me as king over Israel. You will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. Uh, This same terminology is used by Solomon in the book of Proverbs. When he says in uh, Proverbs, where is it? Um, uh, yeah, there it is. Proverbs chapter two, verse nineteen, speaking of the um, the the forbidden woman, starting in verse sixteen. He says in verse nineteen, "None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life." So there's a there's a a path of life that I think has to do with walking with God, walking in holiness, walking in purity, enjoying God's presence. And ultimately, this is going to be the the straight and narrow way that leads to eternal life. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Why is there fullness of joy in God's presence? Because there's fullness of holiness. Where he is is where holiness is, where purity is. That's where life is. That's where joy is. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, I think the concepts that are at play here go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So that the the Garden of Eden, uh, before man sinned, is the clean realm of life. And the reason they have to be driven out of the Garden when they sin is because... Sin cannot be tolerated within the presence of God. They, they have to be driven out of the, the clean realm of life into the unclean realm of the dead because of their sin. If they had not sinned, they would have remained in the place of life. Now, um, with, with all this kind of before us, let me invite you to stick a finger here and look with me over to Acts chapter 2. And we'll just start reading in verse 22. So Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And um, these people in Jerusalem know what has happened. And as we'll see in Acts chapter 5, one of the proofs that somebody wasn't the Messiah was that they got themselves killed. Okay, so, so all these people in Jerusalem, they think Jesus was obviously not the Messiah because we just saw him get crucified. And so Peter is trying to counter that false conclusion by proving that Christ was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. So starting in verse 22, 
Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. So he just indicts them. You know, I mean, can you imagine? He's got this crowd of people. They could rip him to shreds. And he just points his finger right at them and says, you're guilty for crucifying him. He was delivered up according to the definite plan of God, God's sovereignty. You crucified him, human human responsibility, by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, resurrection. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Well, for one thing, because he was sinless. And the wages of sin is death. And he hadn't earned that wage because he hadn't sinned. I mean, for another thing, he has the power, as the author of Hebrews says, of an indestructible life because he's God incarnate. It's not possible for him to be held by death because he's holy and because he's God. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then watch what happens in verse 25. For David says concerning him. But then listen to the words that Peter quotes David saying. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. You see the point I'm driving at? Peter says, David says concerning him. And then Peter quotes David apparently talking about himself. David talking about David. And Peter says, David says concerning him. You see see the tension I'm trying to draw out here? What is going on? Here's what I would propose to you is unstated. Peter believes that in talking about himself, David is presenting himself as a type of the one to come. I think this is the most satisfying of the available solutions. What this would entail would be that David knows as he writes Psalm 16, I am being persecuted by Saul. And my experience of being rejected by my Israelite kinsmen and having my Israelite kinsmen trying to kill me is like the experience of Moses who was rejected by his Israelite kinsmen at various points. And at different points, they picked up stones to stone him. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill Moses. And he was the one that God had raised up to deliver. And that's similar to even prior to the Moses, uh, Joseph The Lord gives Joseph these dreams. His brothers are bowing down to him in the dreams. How do his brothers respond? They reject him. They want to kill him. They put him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. They tell tell their father he's dead. So I think David is thinking something like this. What's happening to me is an installment in a pattern of events that matches the pattern of events that happened to Moses and the pattern of events that happened to Joseph. And this pattern keeps getting repeated because it's going to culminate one day in the experience of the the seed that God has promised to raise up for my line. So I think David sees all this, understands it, and says, as I write up my story, I know that I'm not only talking about what happened to me in my life, I'm also anticipating what's going to happen in the life of the one to come. So that in speaking of himself, David speaks of him. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. You see, I think, what I'm I'm saying. I think this allows 
Psalm 16, to retain its contextual meaning in the Old Testament, and it allows what the way that Peter interprets Psalm 16, uh, it allows Psalm 16 to mean what Peter says it means in context. I think this is a better solution than other solutions that, that have been put forward, which if you want to hang around afterwards and talk about prosopological exegesis or some of these other things, uh, we can do that. For right now, I want to I keep reading here. David says concerning him, and then he quotes the passage that we've just, we've just seen from Psalm 16. Look at verse 29. Luke presents Peter saying, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. I think what Peter is saying is something like this. These words that I've just quoted from Psalm 16, they're not exhausted in David's historical experience. David died. There's his tomb. And then he's going to talk about what David was doing, verse 30. Being therefore a prophet. So uh, Luke presents Peter saying, David was a prophet, which means David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to get it right. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So look at what Peter is saying. He's saying, Essentially, David knew the promises of 2 Samuel 7. Peter doesn't put it that way, but that's what he's talking about. God made these promises that are recorded in 2 Samuel 7. David knew and understood those promises. David was a prophet inspired by the Holy Spirit. Those two things come together and, verse 31, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now look again. Verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me... Again, I I submit, in speaking of his own experience, David is consciously intending to speak of the experience of the one to come. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you see in here. And then he quotes Psalm 110. Now, um, I think that what I'm telling you, um, there's there's a, a proof of the pudding is in the eating kind of test. And the test goes like this. These people in this audience, they know the Bible. The people that, that Peter is preaching to, they know the Bible. And they have access to Psalm 16. So in order for them to be convinced, they have to have the sense, what he has just said about Psalm 16 is exactly right. Otherwise, they're going to say, that's not what Psalm 16 means. And I'm not going to bet my life and my eternal destiny on your misinterpretation of the Bible. I mean, these are not dumb people. These are not people who have checked their brains at the temple gate when they came into the temple courts that day. These are people who know the scriptures and are willing to think about the scriptures, and 3,000 of them believed what Peter said. I think that demands the conclusion that Peter presented a compelling interpretation of the Old Testament, an interpretation of the Old Testament that they, they resonated with. They thought, okay, yes, that's how it works. That's what's going on. And, and I submit that if, if you... You know, you read across the book of Acts and you, you work through the whole of the scriptures. What I'm, what I'm talking to you about, this typological interpretation, this will make so much sense 
of the way that the biblical authors are operating, the claims that they're making, the arguments that are based, that are based on the Old Testament that they're developing, and it will make sense of why people believed these messages. So, um, I think we're just about out of time. I want to I conclude um, with a story that has to do with who we are as the bride of Christ. We, we, we believers, we are, um, at, in a, we are the covenant partner of the blessed man. The blessed man in Psalm 1, I'm arguing, is the future king from David's line, the Lord Jesus. He's the one who's been raised from the dead. Paul teaches that as members of the church, we, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. I heard um, an evangelist from England tell this story. Um, his name is Rico Tice. Uh, he said that um, he, he once preached at this, at this all-girls school in England. And um, this place was renowned for being just nasty. I mean, terrible bullying, these gir- the way these girls treated one another. And um, there was one particular um, young lady who only lasted like a term and a half at this school. And um, uh, because of what eventually took place with this young lady, um, this story became widely known. Um, one, of, one of her contemporaries was, was interviewed about, her, about this young lady's time at the school, and, and, the, and the young lady said, yeah, when we knew her, she was basically a non-entity. We, we, we had no respect for her whatsoever. And, and they were so harsh to this, this little girl so mean to her that on one occasion, again, one of these contemporaries who was interviewed recounted coming around a corner to a, a flight of stairs, and there she sat on the stairs, and she was just weeping. And her experience of being bullied at the school was so bad that her parents eventually removed her from the school. Um, now, that little girl's name was Kate Middleton. And um, she is now as you know, married to the prince. And the reason I'm telling you this is because Rico Tice said, he said, imagine if you could have found Kate Middleton while she's being bullied at that school and shown her a picture of her wedding day. There she is, dressed in white, with a million people on the streets of London as she stands on that balcony at Buckingham Palace. Marrying the prince, being welcomed into the family, and everyone there to see her. Imagine going to that little girl, weeping on the stairs with a photograph of that day, and saying, this is you. This is what awaits you. You're going to be the bride of the prince. Wouldn't that change everything? Shouldn't this change everything for us? Our bridegroom, the one who comes as our bridegroom, is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And there is no sorrow that we have. And there is no suffering that we will face that, Paul says, that is worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed. Let's conclude this evening with a word of prayer. And then if you have questions, I'm happy to stay around and talk about whatever you want to talk about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. 
we pray that you would cause our hearts and minds, cause our imagination to be captured by the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would, through him, lay claim to our allegiance and make us people who find our delight in him, find our identity in him, people for whom all our hopes are in him. And Lord, would you so cause the scriptures to nourish us that we would be delighted to meditate on the scriptures, that we would be devoted to living for you. And Lord, we pray that you would make the the allurements of the world, the temptations to sin, we pray that you would make these things distasteful to us, disgusting even. We pray, Lord, that you would make us people who love holiness and, like the Lord Jesus, hate wickedness. And, Father, we pray that you would convince us of the glory that will be revealed, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we pray that you would uh, make us people who, who walk with you and know you. We love you. We thank you for the goodness of your word. And we pray that you would be honored by us in all things. In Christ's name, amen.